Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hajj Assad, and with me, as always, is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone. If this is the first time you're listening to our podcast, thank you for trying something new. I'll reiterate, Ben and I are a pair of automotive journalists. In fact, I'm going to ask Ben to plug a couple of the recent publications he's written for. Go for it, Ben. You can find my work at Motor Trend, at Inside Hook, and at Driving Line. And you can find my work at autotrader.ca, as well as EV Pulse and TechSpot. Ben, this is all you today. I want to, I want to hear no. about this. Yeah, it is. This is, the, this is the Ben Speaks podcast. I want to hear what you have to say about the Kia K5 that you've been driving recently, you which realize, is a mid-sized sedan, right? Yes, but you realize when you call it the Ben Speaks podcast, we instantly lose half of our listeners. They just click stop. But we stop. also gain about 200% more listeners, which is a pretty good deal in my opinion. I don't, I don't see how we can gain listeners who weren't already listening, but then again... It's magic. Pod- it's the magic of Benjamin Hunting. It's the magic of podcast listenership statistics, which I'm going to be honest, are a little above my pay grade. <laughs> yes. So yeah, I, I drove the K5, which is a completely redesigned version of what Kia used to call the Optima. And the Optima is a car I liked. It was sort of fun to drive. Like it it wasn't boring. It wasn't super exciting, but it was competent. It was a similar platform to the Sonata, which has been a great car for at least the last 10 years. And it was a little more style forward. Although I guess the Sonata has taken a lot of risks in the last five years or so. So I can't really um, say which car is is more uh, extroverted than the other. Uh, the new K5 is kind of wedge-shaped, got a bunch of folds and creases in it. It's got a small grill, which is surprising in a world where grills are ridiculously huge almost across the board. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a point in its favor. And I, I think it looks pretty good. Mine, is in, mine was in a color. Uh, Kia has a special name for it. Let me pull it up here. It's like Arctic Fox Gray or something like that. Um, okay. It's called Wolf Gray, sorry. And uh, it, it's it's nice. It's Arct- kind of... Arctic Wolf or just Wolf? Just Wolf Gray. I, was, I don't know why I dressed it up. <laughs> but it, it's like that kind of sort of cement but a little lighter colored. And uh, yeah, it's, it's generally a, hands- a handsome sedan inside. Uh, it's pretty nice. Um, I'll give you an idea of just how attuned we've become to cars being i guess style first on the inside of the cabin versus even just a few years ago so i drove this car back to back with a singer gt which is a more expensive car from kia and something that they've kind of aimed at the semi-luxury market the k5 interior blows it away i mean really yeah everything about it i think a lot of it has to do with the fact that in the stinger and i'll talk more about this next week in detail when i'm i'm talking about the stinger specifically but the stinger has a lot of flat or rounded expanses of um plastic where it's it's not necessarily plastic but it's kind of like that plasticized leather covering that's on the dash and the and the sides of the doors and stuff and it's just featureless like it's not ugly but it's not enticing to look at whereas the k5 really is lacking that and it integrates a much larger screen for the infotainment system in a way that where the the stinger just kind of pops it on the dash and it's a little small and so Anyway, that's just I, – I wanted to mention the Stinger because uh, I was surprised by how different these interiors are, especially considering this car is a lot more affordable. Um, but uh, all the good things I have to say about the K5 Sammy are about how it looks, how it feels inside, and I guess the price. It's pretty decent. The The base model K5 starts at twenty three grand. 
and the GT is 30000 Uh The version I had was right in the middle. It's the GT line. It's $25,000. And it comes with it comes with a 1.6 liter turbo four. It's about 180 horsepower. I know I've talked about this engine recently in the Celtos. I believe they're very similar. Um, although the difference being in this vehicle, I don't have that DCT transmission that I think the Celtos has for that uh, for that motor. Am I correct, Sammy? Yeah. Yeah. This is an eight speed automatic. It's a lot smoother. Uh, but it's you. Sorry. There's, a, there's a whole lot of interesting things that you, you're talking about that I haven't had the chance to just jump in and interrupt you let's until do it. right let's, now. Let's, Is let's that pick, okay? Yeah, let's pick a few of them because I wanted to get those good things out of the way before I started talking about the drive experience. Well, I, I'm well. That that's very curious. I, I want to talk about the the K5 and the new the new name of K5 versus Optima, which I thought. The Optima name had been building, I think, in reputation, and the last generation Optima was actually pretty good, as you mentioned. Um, a really, um, I think the best way to, say, I think the most difficult thing to say was it was very much in similar, very, very similar to the Sonata, and the Sonata before this current generation was a little conservative looking, and so was the Optima, and I thought they kind of like there was no distinct differentiation between the two of them. Now changing the name seems like a really weird decision for Kia to make. And I, I want to know what you think about the the process of going to an alphanumeric name where none of the other cars in their lineup, I think for the K900, um, have this kind of nomenclature. And, and the K900 is a car that's probably not long for this world uh, in North America. So I, I don't get it. I don't see the need to go to uh, – it, it's it's meaningless. K5 means nothing. No, no one knows what that means. Optima, maybe people were confusing with the battery. I don't know. <laughs> yes. But uh, at least, as you said, it had some kind of equity. Yeah, it's been around. And then I want to talk a little bit about um, about the, the design, which I think um, is still a bit conservative. It kind of looks like, I mean, I think it's surprising that the new Optima looks pretty big, actually. It has kind of presence, wide, uh, wide look to it, and they haven't really made that grill look uh, massive or... Or imposing. Uh, they well, did a good job with that design, right? It's an inch wider than the older Optima, and it's about two inches longer in total. Uh, okay. And almost all of that is wheelbase. So Pro- you're getting a decent space increase inside the vehicle, too. So, yeah, it, it does look bigger. It looks it's, it, it does look longer. And I think part of that is the way the hood uh, kind of – it's slanted downwards, and it has that narrow grille at the front. So, again, like all modern cars – the vehicle actually has an upright front end, but the mm-hmm. way the styling tricks the eye, it makes it look more pointed. I think this front end is the most important thing to differentiate between the K5 and the uh, Sonata, which has a very low point in the hood, uh, deceptively so. And then if you look at the the rear quarter angle of the of the K5, it is a bit like, what do you call it? Like sport back like, which is what the Stinger looks like too, right? Yeah, but they share uh, a bit of a profile. It's not nearly as exaggerated as a Stinger. Uh, Well, a Stinger, I believe, has a rear has a roof mounted tailgate, like so. It is actually a a, yeah, it has a big hatch, and the K five doesn't. And um, I I think that you know the front wheel drive proportions of the K five are are visible when you when you look at it. Uh, It's I wouldn't look at this car and think that it had a hatch. It's not quite as dramatic as that. Okay, now let's get back to what you were talking about with the drivetrain. If I remember, the K5 is now available with an all-wheel drive train, right? Yeah, this is what I had. So there's a the top tier um, K5 GT has a 290 horsepower, two and a half liter turbo four. 
Uh, I've driven that motor in the Sonata N-Line before, and it was uh, a lot of horsepower, almost too much for the transmission and the rest of the car to handle. So the GT line is, it's it's kind of like, I believe they take a lot of the styling of the GT, but you get the more modest engine, which is what I had. Uh, You also, it's the only way you can get all-wheel drive currently, as far as I know. I haven't been able to build a GT with all-wheel drive on the Kia website. So the GT line is the only way to get it. What's kind of weird about it, though, is if you're actually trying to build one. So as I mentioned, the GT line starts at 25000 If you want all-wheel drive, you can't just get all-wheel drive. You also have to buy something called the premium package. It ends up costing another $3,700, Sammy. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Yeah. So now you're at nearly 29000 for the uh, vehicle. Which is a fair chunk of change for a midsize sedan. I mean, it's not super expensive, but it, it's it's not cheap. Um, so you're my, saying the GT is around twenty five, and then once you add all wheel drive, it's like that twenty nine thousand dollar mark. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that that really re- removes that because va- I was quite attracted to that twenty five thousand um, dollar price point. I thought that was fantastic. Yeah, and, but and, now and, when you add what you really want, which is all wheel drive, one of the main reasons you would probably opt for a K five over some of the other uh, vehicles in this class. Um, that puts it in price uh, a price a price bracket that is a lot less uh, appealing, right? And what's weird about it too is so it, it's, it says it's adding the premium package. Okay, so when I build it, I add it, it's it's all together. You, you there's no choice. You can't just get all wheel drive. So you do that, and then it says there's a special edition package on top of that. And I'm like, special edition package? What is this? So I look at the special edition package, and it's essentially it's what my car had, which is you get a bigger screen. Um, you get uh, navigation, some additional Bluetooth stuff, and there's like it has the highway assisted driving. So it's basically this. You mean additional center. Bluetooth stuff? I wow. don't know. <laughs> what multi device audio it streaming. It's multi device audio streaming, Sammy. So you can fight with your passenger about which version of Spotify you're going to be listening to. Uh, okay. and, and that's also where you get the the exclusive wolf gray paint that, that I keep mentioning. So with my oh, car... Oh, yeah, let's talk about this paint. Hold on. Special edition comes no, with wolf gray paint. No, we talked about Every paint needs to be named after an animal. I think that's the most important thing, especially and, as we kill all the animals with all the emissions out there. We, wow. should, we should really remember them through our paint. Well, that got dark. So you're saying this should be commemorative <laughs> paint packages, like a cheetah commemorative paint package? And yeah, it's like we need to have a dodo paint package. We need to have every animal. Dodos died it. before cars came, before cars existed. I don't And see... we should commemorate it through a paint package. Wow. What about Great White Shark, where it's like, it's like dark mm-hmm. gray on the top and white on the bottom? Definitely. On white the wheels. bottom, underneath the car. Yeah, underneath the car and white wheels. Yeah, sure, why not? White I mean, we can always tips. Take that. For sure, we need to commemorate all of the animals through. That is how we're going to keep the animal, the, the 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 you know people need to be thinking about the animals. That's how we're going to keep them thinking about it. Okay. Well, moving on from this concept, um, <laughs> this the car the car I drove was like just over thirty grand, and that's a bit much. Uh, but not if you're getting something really cool. And I think that the Kia stays just this side of really cool. It's. It, the the drivetrain really held me back. That engine, that 1.6 liter engine, it's just so ordinary in every way, and it's it's a little bit loud uh, in that vacuum cleaner esque uh, sound that you get from any small displacement turbo that doesn't have like a really you know well tuned exhaust. Uh, you have enough power to do anything you need, but never enough power to really feel like the car is fun in any way. And I think that. 
when I first got into the car, I was disappointed in how the engine felt. But over time, I got used to it, and I realized, I, I guess I kind of picked up on the vibe that the K5 is throwing down, which is just, hey, uh, everyday driver, nothing special. And if you approach it with that kind of uh, attitude in mind, you're going to be, you'll, you'll be fine with it. But I would have been a lot more fine with it at $25,000. Um, yeah. So, another, okay. another five grand of options, it really takes some of the bloom off that rose. Well, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of things here to dissect. First of all, an all-wheel drive an all-wheel drive midsize sedan sounds attractive. Those, but those are becoming a little bit more common as the Camry and Legacy have all-wheel drive. I can't remember if the Mazda Six is all-wheel drive. I'm not no, sure about that. Okay. Um, so, and I'm expecting more midsize sedans to be coming around with all-wheel drive in the next few years as they try to keep up with crossovers. Um, do you think the all-wheel drive system is what's keeping the engine from feeling particularly or, or the drive particularly engaging that maybe the weight of the all-wheel drive system is is holding it back no i just don't think this car is intended to be fun to drive in gt line form i i think it's you know it's, it's supposed to look kind of sporty and just be comfortable and that's kind of what it was I, the all-wheel drive system worked we had a big blizzard when i had the vehicle and i didn't have any issues with the car i was able to get in and out of my driveway um sorry driveway my alley which is which was really snowed in i was able to deal with you know blowing snow and accumulation on the highways at those speeds the car felt stable all the time i never got high-sided or stuck so it did a good job okay and then i'm also gonna suggest that perhaps the k5 feels this way because there's the really high power um uh gt model with 290 horsepower 80 horsepower yeah, something like yeah, that yeah i think and then there's the Stinger, which is also meant to be a sort of uh, sports sedan of some kind. So if you're making three cars the same, you know, what's going to stop? I, I, I don't expect gonna... it to be sporty. I'm not complaining that it's not sporty. I'm just saying it's very ordinary and you have to be OK yeah. with that. And, and it's harder to be OK with that when it's more expensive than it needs to be. Like, I a think 30, it's, it's yeah. a $30,000 GT line K5 is the same price as a GT that has that 100 horsepower boost. Yeah. So yeah. you're saying so that's that what I'm saying. Drive is something you want to trade. You're trading a lot of power for the bonus of all-wheel drive. That's basically mm-hmm. what you're doing. And I don't know if that's. I don't think that's. I don't think that's appropriate. And I, I think we're we're eagerly waiting for a competitor to the Legacy Turbo, the turbocharged Legacy with the 2.4 turbo. Is that it? Well, how much horsepower uh, does that put up? That makes over 200 horsepower. Well, I not mean, that I, that sounds great. No, it's, it's just, I don't really find that car to be sporty at all. <laughs> but I mean, it is a powerful all-wheel drive and uh, midsize sedan. I guess so. So the, but the, the GT or XT? GT also, the GT also has a $4,000 options package if you want. And it includes a lot of the stuff that the GT line had, uh, which is a little disappointing because, you know, if you're paying that much for the GT, you should already get a bunch of features. I find that Kia's trim walk is a little confusing. Uh, I'm not sure exactly who the buyer is for some of these models. Okay. But uh, 260 horsepower and 277 pounds feet of torque for that legacy, um, that turbocharged legacy. Okay. That's a whole, that's a good chunk of horsepower. It's okay. Uh, if you want the all wheel drive in a slightly cheaper model, you can get it um, in the LXS. So there's only two models that get that have it: uh, the GT Line, which is twenty five four ninety, and the LXS, which is exactly a thousand dollars less. But get this: if you buy the LXS, you don't have to buy that options package. 
So you can just get an all-wheel drive. Model. Yeah, you can get all-wheel drive pl- awesome. plus heated front seats. That's like the one thing that comes with it, and it's only twenty one hundred bucks. So you're saving sixteen hundred dollars by opting for the LXS, and you don't get the the funky look of the GT line with the nice wheels and the different front end and all that stuff. You know, like the, the sixteen hundred bucks seems like it's worth it for all of the other niceties that the GT line comes with, right? Well, no, it's not. It's not just sixteen hundred bucks though, because like it's it's thirty seven hundred. Yeah. Like, so if I build an LXS with all-wheel drive, um, let me see here. It's let me pick up this. Uh, Can we also discuss the building build no, a car function on it. the Kia website? Kia's which website is, is very difficult to use. Impossible. So you end up with it's it's twenty hundred twenty twenty eight thousand. Um, okay. After destination, that still that still doesn't sound like a, a sweet spot. No, but it's two or three grand cheaper than what you would be doing for the GT line. So if you don't need all of that crazy gear and you don't need the look, you just want a comfortable mid-sized sedan with all-wheel drive, you can still do it for like it's like twenty six six ninety before the glacial white pearl paint, which I'm sure I can remove, and the destination it should be named after an animal, polar so, polar bear white or something. This feels good. This feels like if I wanted a K five and I wanted all-wheel drive, I would buy the LXS. No, but no then question. why why do you want a K five? Because I want a daily driver with a good warranty that's decently stylish and comfortable, and 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 I want all-wheel drive. I think that based on the driving manners of this car and the fact that the Camry is available with all-wheel drive, there's way less of a need for this. I'd um, say, that, but how much does the Camry cost with all-wheel drive? Probably a lot more than the K five. Yeah. So that's, that's something that I would keep in mind. Um, the thing is, though, I haven't driven the LXS for any extended period of time. I don't know how much I would, how much less I might like the K5 without all the GT lines niceties. Like I had the heated seats, heated steering wheel, the big infotainment system, which isn't even available with the LXS version. You just get the, the standard one. Um, I wasn't a huge fan of the big infotainment. It, it was kind of weird. I don't feel like it's properly used uh, when you, when you get in. It just kind of shows a big blank space that has a ghost of a navigation map on the far right. And I feel like they could have done something cooler or made it more interesting to look at or more practical. But it does work, so I can't really complain I mentioned this in the, in the Hyundai Elantra that there's like this right segment that is not fully utilized. Is that what you mean? I'm sorry, say that again? In the Elantra, it's similar. There's like a right segment to the infotainment system that is not fully like utilized. Yeah, it kind of, it. I didn't really have that with this car. Okay. Um, anything else you want to add about the K5? You know what? No, I think I'm no. good. I think I've, I think that's everything I had to say. Are you eager to to spend more time in it? Do you want to drive that two night that two hundred? plus horsepower that nearly 300 horsepower version of it like i was kind of excited to drive the 290 but now that i can't get it with all-wheel drive and now that i've sampled the chassis and the gt line am i just gonna get like a torque steering less fuel efficient version of the k5 like my experience with the sonata n line is yes you will that's exactly (laughs) what you're gonna get uh way too much tire spin and not a lot of everything else it's a novelty but one that wears off and it'll be it'll be interesting to see if Kia has that same thing going for it. So moving on, what would you like yeah, to discuss I, next? I want to talk about Nissan. As you know, Nissan has been slowly revealing the um, the Frontier in production form through its model years. Uh, as I don't know if our listeners know this, but in 2020, um, they updated the engine in the Frontier pickup truck to whatever is going to be coming in the 2022 pickup truck. 
Um, that means you got a 3.8 liter V6 with a nine-speed automatic transmission. But today, or at least the time of recording, they revealed the 2022 Nissan Frontiers exterior and interior, and as a whole, the whole product that we know it as. So, it's, so it's not just it's not just the 2020 truck with the 2021 box and the 2022 engine. Like that's not the. <laughs> That's what I was thinking they might do. It and is then all it is all 2022 items. Then now, mid-cycle refresh, you get the seats. <laughs> it is weird that they did it this way, right? Like usually an automaker will put all of the new stuff in, or just a couple of updates, maybe to the same engine or something. But it's what like Nissan, Nissan did, was just so excited. They're like, "Oh, we have yeah. this engine, and we oh, we got to get it in there." Yeah, Nissan made the engine for the next generation product, but without the next generation truck being finished, they stuck that engine in the current generation truck. Um, a couple of people realized it and said, that's pretty cool. And now we have the fully finished product altogether. So I have to say the design, interior and exterior design of the new Frontier um, is actually surprising. I'm really into the exterior look of the new Frontier. Um, and the interior looks like a decent upgrade as well because, well, the old Frontier was really looking old inside. <laughs> I think that's the best way to describe it. Um, anything you want me to cover right off the bat here? I want to. I want to hear your favorite part of the design. Uh, that front end, it honestly, that those new headlights and the really unique design to the grill. Like it's a very. How do you describe this? There's, the front end design has depth to it. It There's, looks like a concept car. It looks like something you yeah. would see where like they'd be, it, and not a new concept car. It looks like an older style concept car. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean this is like kind of the brutish and imposing proportions you used to see on pickup trucks like five six years ago i think it looks great um and nissan nissan highlighted their um i think it's called the pro 4x is the all-wheel drive version of the frontier which will be getting um some pretty cool features like uh uh, locking out electronic differential, Bilstein shocks, and a bunch of skid plates, which add to that kind of rugged look that this car, this truck gets. I think it's dangerous um, to just put the skid plates on the passenger seat beside you. Like, I feel like if I was in an accident, that skid plate would decapitate me. Yes, all right. There's also uh, an off-road mode um, that um, will... Let me let me describe. Helps to navigate tricky situations by displaying the surroundings when the vehicle is traveling at slow speeds and the four wheel drives is So basically, it's just a, <laughs> a camera array system. So I have a question. I'm looking at pictures of the interior. Are those giant orange speakers embedded in the door, or is that the handle? They look like speak- they look like speakers to me, and uh, that's a, that's a much appreciated touch of color to the cabin. Was there was there a screen at all in the old Frontier? I don't remember. Yes, it wasn't that. Big. It wasn't as big as the one that you're looking at now. Did you have to open the glove compartment to see the screen? <laughs> Why? Because it was just haste. It's like a Garmin screen that was like just kind of hastily installed. So there's a couple of things I do want to talk about this frontier because we've talked about the Titan in the past, which was a bit, which was a lot of great ideas that kind of flopped in the long run. If we look at the frontier, especially the interior, we're looking at a product that doesn't look premium or high end or anything like that. It looks totally functional, practical, um, user focused, I think is the best way to describe it. And I think that this approach is probably going to help them out in the long run. It's a simple truck, right? Yeah, but is it a simple price? Because if you're selling a simple truck, that's one thing. But if you're like the Tacoma is a simple truck, but they ask for a lot of money and they can do that because of the reputation of the truck. With the Frontier, they don't have that. So like you really have to, you're going to have to convince people to buy the Frontier because everyone who was buying it previously was doing it because of the massive discount it came with. 
Well, I will admit that the new, the, the new, I want to call it the new motor, but it's not a new motor. The newer, no, the, the motor that was in the last generation truck, which was the new motor for that last generation truck. I should just say the, the new engine. Just say it's the a motor. Th- no one cares. Wait, okay. This is at Nissan University. <laughs> yes. Uh, the 3.8 liter V6, it's actually, it sounds pretty good. 310 horsepower, 281 pound feet of torque. Maximum towing capacity is 6,700 pounds. Um, and trailer sway control is, is standard, which is uh, pretty cool as well. So, so I think are it's they a all... pretty well-equipped um, truck, right? Are they all four doors? I don't know. Because I, I haven't seen that. a picture of anything that isn't yet. So far, I've only seen four doors. You're right. Okay. I also t- have to add, though, th- that there is one thing that I think we should talk about, is that the new model is four and a half inches longer than the old model, and most of that is because of a bigger a bigger bed. But I think when it comes to a, a compact truck segment, adding that much length to to a product is significant. I, I don't. I think you're you're running away from the concept of a compact truck, right? Well, I mean, you're running away from the concept of a useful truck when you have a tiny bed on a four door compact like this one <laughs> or mid size. That's you know, true. That so, bothers me. I mean, I, I look at the picture of this in profile, and uh, it's. So from the front end, it does look nice. From the side and the rear, it looks like a combination of like a Colorado Like it's like <laughs> it's the same it's same styling cues you're seeing in other trucks. And it's got that stubby box. And I mean, come on, man. I just want a truck I can use. Okay. All right. Well, um, then you're not going to like the next topic, which is <laughs> another truck. Um, this is the 2021 F-150 Raptor, which is the, as we all know it, the like off-road Baja, Baja-inspired Baja version of the F-150 Raptor. Um, and we've seen the Raptor. It's the third generation of the Raptor. Um, I want to talk to you about this because we don't have a ton of information on the powertrain. We do know that it has an updated suspension, including uh, independent rear suspension. Uh, I believe they're... they're no, it's coils. not an independent rear. It's a coil, 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 coil link. Sorry. Yeah, it's my like a five-link coil setup. My mistake. Coil, coil springs in the rear, which is a pretty big deal um, for a pickup truck, right? I mean, Ram's been doing it for like a decade. For everyone that isn't Ram, it's a pretty big deal. Uh, I guess so. <laughs> I mean, Chevrolet was doing it in the front in like the 60s. Um, I have to admit that this new Raptor isn't... Um, isn't really delighting me. It isn't really uh, impressing me in the way that the old Raptors did, uh, and that does that isn't because the the Ram TRX or T Rex, however you want to describe it, is also there now alongside it. It's just that I think when the Raptor came out, it moved the needle in this kind of segment, this off road truck, in a very specific manner. And the, the, the second generation one changed that a little bit by, by downsizing the engine, but being a little bit more of a smarter truck overall. And now this 2021 model, I'm not sold on just how special it is. Although there is a V8 version, I think it's going to be called the Raptor R, um, coming yeah, so you're getting next two, year or something. You're getting two drivetrains. I'm going to be honest. I don't, I'm one of the few people who just doesn't care about the Raptor. Uh, I've Ever never- or just this one? Any of them. I've never driven one that I enjoy driving on the on the road. They are a mess. Um, they just the suspension is not comfortable. Uh, it's it's the car wall the truck wallows everywhere. It's not intended to be driven daily. It's intended to be taken out to the the desert or the off road park and pounded on. And that's not something I'm doing with the Raptor. So from my perspective, 
it's a very expensive toy that I don't have use for. So, like, I understand people, you know, I, I have race cars and stuff. So I understand, like, the idea of having a purpose-built or purpose-specific vehicle. But the Raptor is also super huge and difficult to drive in a city. Uh, even in a small town, it's it's just tough. Like, I, I don't enjoy the extra width and the, the height makes it a handle... Uh, makes it a hassle to kind of have any kind of visual angle of what's in front of you or behind you. Just overall, it's a negative experience for me with the Raptor. And I don't need a truck with that much power for that kind of thing. So I'm not the, I'm not the demographic for the, for the Raptor. We don't have any information on the, on the horsepower yet. I'm sure it's going to be 500. I mean, why wouldn't it be? They have to do Mm -hmm. something to, to catch up to the T-Rex. And I think there's a very close to 500 horsepower version of that motor already available in like the platinum version of the F-150. So it's yeah. not, not that much of a stretch, right? Um, I don't know. I don't get it. Um, I see a lot of these Raptors around where I live. Um, a surprising number, considering what you just said, which is this truck is designed to go off-road. It hit the desert or something. And I don't know where the desert is nearby, man. Like, I, I don't know where they would take it, right? Um, but I will admit that there are some interesting features. I want you to hear this. Um, there's a trail one-pedal drive system that lets the driver use uh, only the throttle for tricky off-roading, and when the foot goes off the throttle, the car, uh, the truck immediately applies the brakes, um, kind of like uh, an EV that you can drive with one foot. Kind of like, but kind of like what you can do with your foot anyway, right? Like, your other foot. <laughs> here's how I feel about off-road assistance systems, and I've said yeah. this before on the show. Uh, because you're a pro off-roader, yes, Ben. No, continue. Not because I'm a pro off-roader, because I don't drive. need any cool features. Yep, go to hit me with it. Because I enjoy driving, and to me, having computers take over doing something I enjoy as an enthusiast doesn't make any sense. It would be like having a race car that you go onto the track and it steers itself and brakes and, and accelerates for you. I don't get the point. If you enjoy going off-road, why would you want to farm out all the aspects of off-road driving that make it interesting or challenging to a computer system? Like I don't get ter- terrain control. I don't get these kinds of braking systems that Ford's introducing. Um, I don't get the uh, the hill descent management, all of that stuff. Like if, if, if the truck is driving itself up and down these crazy grades and over these boulders, why are you there? Like, why don't you just remote control it from a distance? To get to the end result, of course, right? You need, to, re- you need to to get to cross the 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 rugged, tough terrain that's ahead of you. You can do that on a highway if you're just trying to get from A to B. If you're off-roading, you're doing it for fun, I think. And I understand that, you know, over time, driving really slow speeds down a hard grade is going to be um, mentally exhausting. And I understand why you might want to not do that at a certain point, but... It just seems like so many of these features are designed to take the human element out of the driving experience, and these are enthusiast vehicles, and I don't get that. I mean, I get it because I believe that these are sort of coaches. They're meant to assist you in in something. You're not going to be the best off-roader immediately, uh, and you want to make sure you don't damage your your car, your, make the trail unsafe or hurt somebody else. But- or mess something up in the in the process, and but these are kind of coaches to help you get through. They're not uh, coaches though, because they're not they're not telling you how to do it. It doesn't you don't learn anything by using this feature. A coach is someone who sits beside you and shows you how to use how to it's drive guidance. your vehicle. It's assistance. There's no. there's 
it's the assistance is there for you to get. But, but to characterize it as coaching is incorrect because you don't learn anything. A coach teaches you something. If a system, you learn ta- the capabilities of the truck. I mean, that, that's but what that it's doesn't there teach for. you how to drive it. I mean, you could have a pro driver. If, if you if you have a blindfold and you're sitting beside a pro driver and they're driving you around the racetrack, you'll never learn anything. If that person takes off the blindfold and shows you what you're doing, then you learn. If you just turn on cruise control. While you're off road, you're not going to learn how to brake or how to how to accelerate gently or all these things you need to learn in order to become a better or I guess more comfortable driver in that situation, which is essentially what you want to do if you're an enthusiast about that kind of driving. But like an automatic braking system seems like it's it's not taking away the control from you. You are it is it is if anything, it's ensuring that you maintain control while you're facing a tricky obstacle that you need to brake for instead of using the momentum in. You know, there's there's always momentum when you're going downhill or uphill. The word Hitting automatic, the is, it, 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 by definition, so that's what I mean, right? Removes like, control. That, but it, that's what we're going. The car, every truck comes with an automatic transmission. It's not like that's changing, changing significant. You know, you're still driving the truck, right? But it does change how you drive off road for sure. Automatic transmission versus manual, and there's people who prefer either. But you're, you're making a bunch of you're, yeah, you're making a bunch of different arguments right now. Whereas the I'm initial, not allowed to do that. Well, the initial. Well, argument, let me just let, let's just have one argument at a time. Well, I don't understand what your position is because first you were saying, trying to in automatic. In, I mean, it, first of all, I think that those systems are necessary for people to get acclimatized to a new tr- to, to a new truck. But you don't get not- acclimatized to anything because you're not driving. It, it, I'm not saying it doesn't make the truck more capable. What I'm saying is it's an enthusiast vehicle that takes the enthusiast out of the driving equation. Sure. Okay. I mean. If there was a computerized system in there that taught you how to use your brakes and your accelerator on like a the center control. what's that? Like one of those, like one of those graduated stability controls that you can dial or, all the or way maybe some kind of like system on the infotainment that would be like, okay, apply this much pressure and then release it and that kind of thing. Then yeah, I could but see that seems like a distraction if I'm staring at the infotainment system instead of out the out the window or something. But it's a coaching system that would tell you how to drive your vehicle, whereas this is just a set it and forget it autopilot. You think? I mean, there, there are solutions here. We, that's what I'm trying to get at. Is that you know they they've come up with? You're right. They've come up with the the, the all automatic everything, and there should be a graduate. Like when we talk about driving the Corvette on the track, there is those different PTM settings and, and stability tr- control settings that allow us to um, get closer to uh, the limit that we're comfortable with, right? Yes, but you will never turn in the fastest lap time. If you're relying on the computer to drive for you, you still have no, to learn how to drive. but you're learning more and more about how to drive the car. But it's not the same thing because it's not actually driving the vehicle. These are actually driving the vehicle. Right. So, like, I feel like that's a very, very big difference. But I do feel the same way about a lot of these on-track features as well. All right. I mean, it's it, the question is, why are you there? Are you there to turn the fastest lap time or are you there to drive your vehicle? These are two different things. And if you're off-roading, are you there to drive off-road and challenge yourself and figure out how to get from A to B? Or are you just there to get to the top of the trail and then go home in the exactly. easiest way yeah. possible? Yeah. To conquer the hill, right? I feel like what, well, you're not conquering the hill. You're just going up the hill. Like there's a difference. Well, you're, you and the truck are going up the hill. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, someone, we, can someone... we, can just go, we can go rock climbing, right? Like that's it. Uh, sure. Without a truck altogether. Sure, you could do that. You could go hiking. I mean, there's just lots of different ways to enjoy the outdoors. I just don't see the point. All right. It feels hollow. Okay, sure. I, I mean, I think that there, there's value to these features, but uh, okay. I respect it. Like, I can't, I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong. I'm not trying to tell you that you're wrong. I just think that there's some 
there's there's still some people who appreciate those features. Well, I'm sure lots of people appreciate them. I just don't understand. Specifically the buyers. I, I think, just don't but. understand them. Like I understand the marketing aspect of it because they need something, you know, to differentiate the trucks. But like practically, it's it's just a weird juxtaposition. If this was on like an emergency vehicle, sure, I totally get it. You know, like or a utility vehicle or a fleet vehicle. But this is an enthusiast. Sound that vehicle. good for an emergency vehicle? Because can you imagine every time they let off the brake? Which, I mean, the gas would just slam the brakes, and the poor person well, I'm, in the I'm, I'm would be like, that, ah. <laughs> I'm hopeful that the system doesn't slam the brakes every time you take your foot off the gas. That's what I understand. One pedal driving. Come on, one pedal. It's like so abrupt. It's just, there's no transition. It's just. It's I like, will it's admit, I break actually. <laughs> I don't. I don't actually find the appeal of one pedal driving because um, I don't think it's as predictive as I want it to be. I, I drove the Volvo um, XC40 P8 Recharge um, about a month ago, uh, and it has a uh, one pedal driving feel, and it's it's poorly tuned. And every time you're trying to pull into a into a parking spot, it's starting to hit the brakes halfway through the spot because I just want to coast into the spot, right? Yeah. And it well, ju- it makes me look crazy like i don't know how to drive anymore that's why i appreciate the systems that allow you to like um the the kias that i've driven recently the electronic sorry the electronic the electric kias that i've driven have the ability to dial up and down the amount of one pedal type of driving you want to do and that really makes a big difference because otherwise you're right like you end up being unable to tell when you're actually going to stop because a third party cpu is making that decision for you um, I want to change gears a little bit and talk about a story that you recently published on Motor Trend, which is about a Subaru flat 12-cylinder engine. Is this right? Yeah, so I, I accidentally came across the fact that Subaru decided to go Formula One racing in the early 90s, Sammy. And uh, I had no idea. Like, Well, because I, how would we know? It wasn't in any Gran Turismos or, or Forza games. How would I like we how that for know? you is like the only way <laughs> anyone finds anything about racing. They're like, well, if it didn't hit PlayStation or Xbox, chances are you're unaware of it. <laughs> 100%. You know that's true. I'm, sure, I'm certain there's a bajillion listeners that are exactly like that. <laughs> so uh, they, they decided – this is before Rally. This is before Subaru was big into WRC. And they wanted to be in motorsports because everyone in Japan was in motorsports at that time. Like, it was the bubble economy. Every car company had a bunch of money. They were throwing at various degrees of open wheel or sports car or prototype racing, right? So uh, Subaru was like, why not me? Why not me? And they ended up uh, contacting a company called uh, Motori Moderni, which is an Italian concern that was a they they had a lot of experience with uh, open wheel it was run by a guy named carlo chidi and carlo chidi was the brain trust behind alfa romeo's racing for a very long time sports car uh formula one all that stuff they've been building engines for a couple teams and when subaru approached them they were like okay so you have a v12 that you've been trying to sell people but we're all about horizontally opposed boxer engines can you make us a flat 12 uh, and uh, Chidi was like, yeah, of course, I can do that. And he ended up doing it. And he built a three and a half liter flat 12. And then they had to find a car to put it in. So they came up with, they, they went to um, Colony, which was, uh, there's a guy named Christian Vanderplein who had built this uh, chassis for Formula One. And they built a variant of it called the C3B. And they replaced the motor that had been in it with the flat 12. And they were like, okay, we're going to go racing. Okay, and 
And it was a disaster. I mean, oh. everything everything about it was a disaster. So, what is the name of this engine? It was called the one two three five. The twelve thirty five. The twelve thirty five for twelve cylinders and three point five. Right. Yeah. So okay. uh, there were a whole bunch of problems with it. There were the there were two major problems with the engine, and then another. Are you telling me flat engines aren't reliable? Because I need to go back to my fleet and, and sort this out. What's what happened here? The issue was the engine was like two hundred fifty pounds heavier than a normal Formula One V eight from that era, but oh, no. it was a hundred horsepower less than pretty much every other car on the starting grid. Oh no! So it was heavy and underpowered and. And then it got worse, Sammy, because when they... But wait, hold on, hold on. The whole advantage to flat engines is that they're a lower uh, center of gravity or something like that. So we got this, right? Yeah, so that was actually a positive aspect of the motor. But it was also the only positive aspect of the motor. Because okay. the way a flat engine is is set up, Two I mean... Two steps back, one step forward. Well, they had six cylinders horizontally opposed to each other, right? So it's pretty wide. And when they put it in the car... It was so wide that they had to redo the air, the side pods on 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 the car to uh, incorporate air ducts instead of just using an air box like they had on the original C3. So they the car had the the Formula One car had never been designed for this type of aerodynamics. So they're messing with the aero, and then this is right around the time like ninety ninety one, right around mm-hmm. the time that Formula One was getting really into venturis underneath the vehicle. So you would have the body of the vehicle underneath would have tunnels that would create downforce themselves. So in addition to the arrow on the outside of the car, you had arrow underneath the car. And this was really important. It really, really improved handling at high speeds. But because of the width of the V12, oh, sorry, the, I'm going to say V12, the flat 12, they couldn't put those channels in the body. They just interfered with everything. So they had a car that wasn't fast, but even if it had been fast, they wouldn't have been able to turn it. Mm. Okay. So... It didn't do very well. Did it do well enough? Or no, did it I just mean, didn't they, do well at all? They tried eight times at eight different Grand Prix to, to qualify and pre-qualify, and it never did. It was like routinely at the back when it wasn't broken. Uh, and it's funny. They, they ended up – so after eight races, Subaru was like, okay, enough. We're done. You were right. We're sorry. Uh, and then Moderni was like, well, we've got this motor. What are we going to do? <laughs> So first they tried to give it to some Group C racers, some Group C sports car racers. There's this Alba Formula team picked mm-hmm. it up. And uh, they they tried it for a couple races, but the problem was it had all of the same issues that it had in the Formula 1 car, except even worse inside the Group C car. It wasn't powerful. It interfered with aero, and they were like 30 seconds off the pace. Oh, my God. Okay. And then it blew, they, they had one of the engines blow up at Spa, at, Spa, uh, at the track. Mm-hmm. And that was the end for Alba. They were like, okay, we're going back to a V8. Um, a couple of streetcar companies tried to do something with the V12. Sorry, the flat 12. I keep saying V12 because no one uses a flat 12. Although, right. to be fair, Ferrari developed a flat 12 at the beginning of the 80s, I believe. Anyway. Um, the, okay, uh, so what streetcar companies? Well, I wanna, I, I, I'm hearing Konasek. And I want to come back to the, the flat 12 thing uh, on the street earlier, the Ferrari okay. flat 12. So... Uh, the first company that looked at it wasn't Koenigsegg, Sammy. It was a company called Dome, um, which was building a bunch of race cars for Toyota. And there was this guy named, uh, he, he was called, um, what was his, what was his name? Kurihisa, Kurihisa Ito 
was a dude who was making this car called the Yoto Caspita. It was like a just like a one-off supercar kind of deal. And he went to Dome and he was like, hey, I can get these engines pretty cheap. Can you put them in the car? So they did. They brought it to a car show. I think it was the Tokyo Motor oh, Tokyo Auto Show in like 89, just before the car went on the racetrack. Mm-hmm. Everyone was like, oh, wow, flat 12. That's really sexy and cool. And then Subaru like had a terrible season. And <laughs> Dome was like, maybe we shouldn't use this motor. Yeah. <laughs> and Oops. so they... <laughs> they took it out and they put it in a they put in a V10 and, and and they never looked back. But you brought up Koenigsegg. So Christian von Koenigsegg was friends with a friend of Carlo Chidi and they got to talking about the car that Koenigsegg was building. And at the time they'd been using an Audi V8 uh, okay. for the very first Koenigsegg prototype. And this is in like 96. This is a few years after the the dust has settled on the racing disaster. And um the guy the guy who was buddies with Chidi was like, hey, we have this flat 12. It'll fit in your car. And Koenigsegg was like, that's good because Audi decided not to sell us any engines. They were like, you can use it in your prototype, but we're not going to give you any kind of discount. We're not going to allow you to buy in bulk. And he, like, Christian tried to go behind Audi's bag and find, like, a third-party supplier that had an agreement with Audi. But they, they, it didn't work. It fell apart at the last minute. So the very first prototype for the Koenigsegg, it had this engine in it. Uh, the wow. problem was Chidi died right around the same time they'd installed the motor. And when he did that, Motori Moderni went out of business. And even though Koenigsegg had bought all of the blueprints and, and some of the tooling to build the motor in themselves, it turned out it was way too expensive to do. So they ended up going in a different direction. Oh, so is that the end of the Subaru uh, 1235 there? Pretty much. I mean, there are still some for sale every once in a while. They pop up. But finding parts, finding someone who knows how to work on the motor, it's not easy. And even if you did, why would you want it? Like, it's kind of a boat anchor that doesn't make a ton of power. Uh, it wasn't powerful back then. And, and by today's standards, it's it's even worse. So it's it's kind of interesting because, you know, Subaru very famously would pivot to rally, right? Like, right after this... They got into WRC. It became the whole image of the brand. And for the Mm -hmm. 20 years after that, it kind of informed all their product decisions from a performance perspective. I mean, who who would imagine, like, imagine what would have happened if this 1235 was a incredible success, how much that would change the direction of Subaru today, right? Yeah. I mean, would they have had any money to go into rally? (laughs) <laughs> yeah. because but no Formula i mean one imagine is, they were successful in f1 rather than rally racing that's what i'm saying so they wouldn't probably wouldn't have been able to afford to do both it's a small no. company so you yeah. end up you, you wouldn't have the wrx and we'd have a brz that had 500 horsepower <laughs> exactly there you go to- <laughs> there you go it would have a really long hood <laughs> it'd be so long yeah it'd be or, fantastic. or maybe more accurately we would have a svx that had 500 <laughs> horsepower but it's 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 interesting. So for Subaru to succeed in rally, they had to fail in Formula One, and it, it you never there's no way to plan for that kind of thing uh, when you're in the moment. I mean, Subaru could have known that hey, just because we're branded with flat engines doesn't necessarily mean we need to have that everywhere, right? Like maybe we should do what other people are doing to be successful. But uh, it's it's one of those turning points in history for an automaker. Um, and I want to come back to the whole Ferrari flat 12 thing. A lot of people think that the engine in the Testarossa is a flat 12, that that it's a horizontally opposed 12 because it looks exactly like one, but it's actually a 180 degree V12. Which is, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me because 180 degrees is a flat 
is a line. The difference the difference between a V12 and a flat engine is a V12 shares the crank pins. The right. cylinders share crank pins, and on a boxer engine, each cylinder has its own crank pin. So, okay. the, so the the Ferrari is a it's a V design. It's just compl- It's just 180 degrees. Whereas Why? whereas this V this flat 12 for Subaru individual crank pin. So it, it has to. Do is there with- an element of complexity when you compare the two that way? Yeah, I mean, it changes. Um, it, it changes the balance of the motor, right? Because of where how they how they're connected to the crankshaft, and it changes a bunch of other things related to that. So it's uh, it, it is a t- an entirely different concept of engine. Like it, it's not like you don't in a boxer engine because because they're facing each other, the pistons are perfectly balanced. But once they start sharing the crank pin, they're no longer able to be balanced in that way. So it's it's a different concept. Cool. That's a great story. I love that, Ben. And uh, good, good for you on on diving deep into that. Uh, there are a couple of details that w- you did um, omit, but I'm going to tell people to head on over to Motor Trend and check this story out because uh, it, it's really well done. Good job, Ben. Um, I want to now close up the the podcast, if that's possible. Do you have anything else you want to add today? No, I'm all, no I'm all podcast. I'm all podcasted out. Shout okay. out! Shout out to Wesley Snipes, who um, you know you, I don't know why, but you, I haven't shouted out anyone on the podcast in forever. But he's upset that they're making a new Blade movie without him, and I'm right there with him. So, all right, cool. So let's just tell people where to find our podcast. They can go to unnamedautomotivepodcast.com, um, and you can subscribe to our podcast using the variety of buttons on the top of the screen. Uh, furthermore, when you're at our website, you can see all of our older episodes, some photos that went with each episode, links to articles and stuff that we've talked about. Um, and you can also click on a contact us button and uh, fill that out and it lands on in our inbox. There are other ways to get in touch with us, just like there's other ways to subscribe to our podcast. Uh, you can go to your favorite podcast client, type in unnamed automotive podcast. Um, I'm not sure what would happen if you put either Ben or my name in your podcast client. I don't, don't think do that it. Would don't take the don't risk. Do it. You can just search for Unnamed Automotive Podcast and you should be able to find us. It should be easy. Um, and if you want to get in touch with us, there are other ways to do it. As I mentioned, you can email us. It's Benjamin at, Bun- at sorry, Benjamin at BenjaminHunting.com or you can get in touch with us on social media. You can find me on Twitter where I'm at Sammy underscore ha, like you're laughing. That's S-A-M-I underscore H-A. And you can find Benjamin on Instagram. He's at Hunting Benjamin. Uh, that's H-U-N-T-I-N-G B-E-N J. Uh, what is it? A-M-I-N? I don't think you need to spell it out. Honestly, oh, okay. I think at this point, it's just you're making a mockery of social media. So, <laughs> no, I love it. I love it all. Ben, what are you talking about next week? Next week, I am going to be talking about, surprise, surprise, the Stinger GT. Very cool. And I'll be talking about the Chevrolet Blazer RS. Okay, that's exciting. So uh, we hope you're all back next week. Take care, everyone.